Well, hey, y'all. Good morning. You know, from the front row all the way up to our mezzanine level, from side to side, from everyone online, I'm really happy to be here with you. I'd love for you to come with me to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. I, um, I want to continue our teaching series on Christ in the Old Testament, and I want to share a surprisingly encouraging message to a church living in exile. Again, as Pastor Jason said, my name is Matt. I have the honor of serving as our spiritual formation pastor, which means I get to work with lots of people in our church to help every single person from cradle to grave become like Jesus for the sake of others. It's a pretty cool gig, and uh, what I'm doing here today is really in service of that. Everything we do as a church is really being done to help us become like Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to learn to do what he wants us to do. And in doing that together, we believe that there's a very real way in which God wants us to be formed together for the sake of the world around us. I want to read Jeremiah 29. I'm going to begin in verse 4. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and I'll read all the way through verse 14. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Both now and every time we open the scriptures, we are hearing God speak to us. And I believe that we have walked into this room to not only hear him speak once, but to continue to listen to him throughout our time together. But we know that that is challenging, if not impossible, for us to just rely on our own strength. And so it makes all the sense in the world. It is the wise path for us to pause before we dig deeper and to go to God in prayer. So here we are, gathered in the presence of God together, and it's an invitation for, from God to bring our lives to Him. Our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our questions, our doubts, our fears, all of us into His presence in this moment as we pray together. 
So almighty and merciful God, it is only by your grace, your love, your power, your presence, that your faithful people in this room are able to run without stumbling after all of the promises that you have given us, particularly the promise of your presence. So we lift up our desires from the top of our heads to the bottom of our hearts. Through King Jesus, our Lord, who with you and your Holy Spirit lives and rules, one God, both now and forever. Amen. Uh, y'all, we need to have a public conversation about, um, about hotel pillows. I don't understand what's going on with hotel pillows. Last month, I took two of my boys to Greenville, South Carolina. We're going to spend a weekend there. We go and watch a minor league game. We get back to the room. We hang out. They have six and a half bazillion times more energy than I do, but finally they wear out and they're asleep. And so I am ready to crawl into bed. I am done. I'm bone tired. And I look at my side of the bed and there are these two beautiful, fluffy pillows. These pillows look like they are made from the stuff of the promised land. I don't know how you get milk and honey into pillows, but I believe I'm about to lay my head down on pillows from the promised land. But y'all, what I discovered is that what they had given me in this hotel were pillows from the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of somebody taking a watermelon and bouncing it off a trampoline, but I'm pretty sure that's what my head did when I leaned into those pillows. Now, I am a side sleeper. I am neither a child nor a villain, so I do not sleep on my stomach or my back. But when I laid on my side into these pillows, it felt like I was sleeping in an airbag. I had no help here, but I had pillow in my face and pillow at the back of my head. I think it's a conspiracy with the National Association of Chiropractors. Because ain't nobody going to be able to sleep well with those kind of pillows. The problem is I forgot my pillow from home. Now, I don't sleep on a brick. I do have a pillow that is perfect. I'm like Goldilocks. It's not too soft. It's not too firm. It's just right. When I lay on my side, it gives me just a little support here in the neck. The support I need on my head. I have an average size head. If I wear a fitted, it's a seven and a quarter. Not too much. Average size. It's perfect. It is my pillow from home. And I am out of an age where home matters. I remember in my 20s, I was serving on staff at a church, and we had an elder retreat about 25 minutes outside of town. And when we broke, all the elders went home. Now, I'm in my mid-20s. I'm like, man, we could just crash here, sleep on the floor, do all that kind of stuff. They're like, no, man, we're going home to our own bed. I understand now. There's something powerful about being at home. Home is where my pillows are. Home is where my snacks are. Home is where my favorite people are. Home is a place where you feel safe and supported. Not everybody has a home. We know that. There are half a million people in this country that are classified statistically as homeless. There are millions more that are living in vulnerable housing. 
Maybe you saw this in June. The AJC put out a report that said that there are 250 apartment complexes here in our city in the year of our Lord, 2022, that are deemed unsafe, either because of violent crime happening in those complexes or because the housing is inadequate. There are rats. There's mold. They're not being kept up well. There are parts of the world and there are chapters in our story as a country where people have been taken from their homes and sent somewhere else. That experience of being taken from your home, that place of safety and security, and being sent somewhere else is what we call theologically exile. Exile is a strange experience. If you've ever watched Stranger Things on Netflix, you know the upside down? Exile feels a lot like home, but it very much feels not like home. Here's a history lesson. 2,600 years ago, the people of God found themselves in exile. The evil empire of Babylon came into Jerusalem, burned the city down, destroyed the temple, and dragged people far away from home into exile. The people arrive in Babylon, and after spending some time there, they're trying to make sense of how did this happen? Why did this happen? What do we do now? And so they took all these stories that had been passed down year after year, decade after decade, century after century, their story as a people, and they began to arrange it in such a way that when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, you can see the theme and pattern of exile. Go all the way back to the beginning of the story. In the beginning, God creates everything out of nothing. He places humanity in a garden, and it's amazing. And they are allowed to stay there, and they're invited to flourish as long as they maintain their allegiance to God. But they don't, so they're sent away. They're banished. They're sent into exile. That pattern in Genesis 1 and 2 and into 3 helps us begin to understand the rest of the story. God brings his people into a promised land, a new garden where his people are invited to flourish for their sake and the sake of the world around them. All they had to do was maintain their allegiance to God, but they didn't, and so they were sent away. They were dragged off into exile. And just so we make the point, that first run of the story from Genesis 1 to 11, in Genesis 11, a city is built and established. Do you remember what that city is? Babylon. The same story where these people find themselves living in exile. Now, Jeremiah's prophecy, the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah's prophecy are a divine accusation against his people. God looks at his people and says, we have a persistent problem that isn't just about a couple of people doing this. It's gone all the way through. The yeast has gotten into the dough, and my people, as a people, are guilty of worshiping false gods and committing widespread social injustice against women and children, widows and orphans, against ethnic minorities and the poor. The people don't listen. They certainly don't change. And so in Jeremiah 25... God tells Jeremiah, go and tell my people that Babylon is coming. They're going to come and destroy the city. And they're going to drag the people away into exile. Now, the northern tribes of Israel had already been taken away into exile. That group of people living in exile had come to believe that their time of exile was almost over. 
that God was about to bring them home. So God tells Jeremiah, I want you to write a letter to the people already in in exile and let them know what's going down. That letter, at least part of it, is what we just read in Jeremiah 29. And this letter is shocking and surprising. There's the... uh, the line from Christmas Vacation where, uh, how's it go? Uh, if I wake up tomorrow and find my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. That is the emotional atmosphere of this text. Christopher Wright, who's an Old Testament scholar, looks at this text that we just read and says, it's a surprise. There's a surprising perspective, there's a surprising mission, and a surprising future. I want to dig into each of those with you, but I want to just invite you to do what I think is going to feel challenging for us, is to feel the shock and surprise of what's here. But I want to name it and just give us invitation to lean in and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So, the message here for these people and for us as a people includes a surprising perspective. Look at verses four to six with me again, okay? So I want to give you a series underneath this of, 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 here's God's will. This is what God wants. You're going to hear me say over and over, God wants this. In verse four, God wants his people in exile. Look at it with me, verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Set aside the geopolitics of it all. God did this. God sent his people into exile. God said to his people, you are no longer welcome in my house. Sit with that. Soak in it. Let it get into your pores. Verses 5 and 6, God wants them to make a home. Far away from home. In exile. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Build, live, plant, eat. Plant what? Plant a garden. Do you remember a story somewhere, I don't know, Genesis 1 and 2, dealing with a garden? He wants them to plant Eden in exile. Verse 6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease. Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham because I intend for you to be the father of many nations. I intend for your family to grow so that you will not only receive my blessing, but you will extend my blessing to the world around you. And there are elements here of as we're listening to this, That is a surprising plot twist. It doesn't make sense. I don't know what's more surprising, the fact that after seemingly abandoning them, God shows back up and says, hey, y'all, I did this. But then says, I did this because the mission that I originally gave you to bless the world is actually going to happen there. That is surprising, but what's shocking about it is the fact that God wants his people to settle in among the people who have walked into their homes, burned them to the ground, and brutalized people that they loved. I think that's really difficult for us to wrap our brains and our hearts around. You might remember centuries later, Jesus looks at 
a group of outsiders. Matthew's gospel, by the way, is written to, to communicate this gospel truth. There are no outsiders in the kingdom of God. When Jesus gives his sermon on the mount, he is speaking to the marginalized and people living on the outside, people who are living under foreign oppression. And he says, you, y'all, we, my people, God's people are a city on a hill. Now, if you go into a city, the thing on the hill, that's a temple, that's a castle, that is an, that's a fortress. It's a place of protection and provision. And what is he saying? Is this somehow you, the marginalized, you, the oppressed, you as my people, you are the source of provision and protection for the world around you. But Jesus, you want me to do that for them? Yes. Why? Because there's a surprising mission here. The surprising perspective is God puts you where he wants you. And the reason he wants you there is because he has an intention for the people of God. Verse 7, verse 7 says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Here's the surprising mission. God wants his people to do the impossible. People who have ruined your life, God says, I want you to work for their welfare. The word there is shalom. I want you to work for their good. I want you to work to make sure that those men, women, boys, and girls in the systems and institutions in Babylon flourish. Impossible because I don't want to. Why would I want to do that after what they did to my people, my family? And God goes further. He says, not only do I want you to do the impossible, I want you to ask the impossible. Because we're going from the limitations of who we are as human beings, and now he says, I want you to pray to me. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, so you want me to tap into unlimited resources on their behalf. You want me to pray to you, God, and ask you to bless the people who have ruined our lives. Yes. Hold up, God. Babylon is evil. Yes. And now you begin to hear and feel the weight of Jesus' words centuries later. You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor. I tell you, in my kingdom, my people, we love our enemies. Surprising mission, y'all. There's also a surprising future here, verses 8 to 14. Verses 8 to 10, God wants them to know the future. He says, y'all, you're not going to be in Babylon long, but you're going to be there longer than you want. And I need you to stop listening to people who, who say they're speaking in my name, but they don't know what I'm about. Verses 11 to 14, he says, I want you to know my plan. He says, my plan is this, verse 11. I have plans for your wholeness. That word for wholeness is the same word as the word welfare in verse 7. It's shalom. Here's the plan. God says, I am inviting you, asking you, directing you, guiding you to seek the shalom of the city. And as you seek the shalom of the city, I'm going to be working for your shalom. You work for their good, I'm working for your good. Not transactional. 
You seek their flourishing, I'm going to take care of your flourishing. And now we hear the words of Jesus. You don't have to be anxious about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Your Father, my Father, our Father knows what you need. So when you do what the Father wants, He'll provide all that you need. Shocking. Surprising. But we need to, we need to translate the experience of exile into the reality of exile for us. When you take that experience of exile that we see in Jeremiah 29 and you zoom out and see the theme of exile, I, I, I think that we're invited to see exile as a way of describing the human condition. To be human is to live in exile. That, that invites us to begin asking questions like, well, why are we in exile? And like, what does exile look like? And those are great questions. And on some other day, we might dig real deep into them. I think I could say this, though, and this might be helpful. I don't believe that there's a one-to-one correlation between the, the Jewish people in Babylon and the, and the American church. But I do think, because it's part of the human condition, that we as a church experience exile. We experience exile when we wake up in a broken world. We woke up this morning, our bodies are brittle, and the world is brutal. That's exile. We experience exile when we grieve the things that are lost. March of 2020 to today, for us as a church, think of the deaths, think of the departures, think of the lost moments, think of the memories that continue to fade from days gone by, think of the uncertainty of how this all works together. Outside of our church, we live in a world that is between two ages and two eras. We're in a transition period. That creates a lot of uncertainty and an invitation to grieve. Pastorally, I want to extend an invitation to you individually, to you and your family, to every home group and Sunday community, to our entire church, to not stunt the work of grief. We become healthy and whole together only as we allow the grieving process to have its way. It's a process that we don't control, and it's a process that creates a lot of complicated feelings and thoughts and relational interactions. But when we experience grief, we are experiencing exile. We as a church experience exile when God seems just out of reach. This is Normal, I think in every church there are seasons where God seems um, a little closer or a little farther away, and there are seasons in the life of every church where the presence of God feels just beyond our grasp. Why that happens is complicated and beyond the scope of this message, and we don't need to overly simplify the explanation. But a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jason said this, and I thought this was really helpful. We experience exile wherever and and whenever God is not. When he is not present, that experience of his absence is exile. And I think we experience exile when we feel the pressure to trade our allegiance to God for allegiance to whatever nation state we're a part of. Jeremiah 29, you can feel this tension 
for these people. And for 2,600 years, every disciple of Jesus and every church has to wrestle with this tension. The trickiness for us is the fact that America is a great place to live. I mean, think about some of the songs we love. You know, you've got Lee Greenwood. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. James Brown, living in America, giving us a tour of some of our great cities. New Orleans, Detroit City, Atlanta, Chicago, L.A. We love our country. But we all know this is not the kingdom of God. Both here and everywhere, throughout time, in every culture, in every generation, the systems, the structures, the ideas, the institutions, the good things that are part of living in this country, they have been corrupted by evil. We live among beautiful people, all of whom have been broken and bruised by sin, yes? So what that means is it's not wrong for us to say, America's a great country. It's not wrong for us to say, hey, why don't we work to make America great? It's not wrong for us to go, but we have not yet arrived at the place where heaven and earth have come together in this place, in this time. So what that means for us is that we experience exile as Christians in America. That is part of what it means to live here on earth. Now, as I think about that, and I think about what is God inviting us to do, I think he's inviting us into a moment where he encourages us. Where he wants to come and reinforce our life together. We believe that Christianity is a way of life. Yes? Some people will refer to it as the way of Jesus. This doesn't really work well in marketing material, but it's not wrong to consider Christianity the way of the exile. It raises questions about how do we live in exile? How do we stay faithful to Jesus? And as I'm wrestling with Jeremiah 29, here's something I wrote down I want to share with you and dig into this a little bit. I think that we're being invited into this. As a church in exile, we practice subversive loyalty, expressing love for our enemies as we rely upon God's grace. As a church in exile, we practice subversive loyalty, expressing love for our enemies, relying upon God's grace. Subversive loyalty is a phrase I uh, picked up from uh, Daniel Smith Christopher in his book, the, uh, Biblical Theology of Exile. It helps situate us in the world that we live in. It says that as Christians living in America, we don't live in open rebellion against the state, but neither do we give ourselves to the ideology of nationalism. Both here in America and anywhere else where God might place us, we are in a limited partnership. What Richard Mao refers to as Christian patriotism, a deep love of people and place that can't be corrupted for political purposes. This is the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jewish boys who end up in Babylon, who take on Babylonian names. Daniel becomes the prime minister of Babylon. But we know the stories. The lion's den, the fiery furnace. There are lines that can't be crossed if we are going to maintain our allegiance to Jesus. Subversive loyalty is a vision it allows us to tap into our imagination about what it looks like to deeply love the place and the people around us, including 
our enemies. Love your enemies. I've been following Jesus for 40 years. And I've come to believe that the single measure of maturity for a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian, is love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, hey, let me fine-tune that for y'all. The single measure of success, of maturity, that's a better word, for a follower of Jesus is, have you grown into the kind of person for which loving your enemy is obvious? How could I not? I have not yet arrived there. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want to make sure we understand who our enemy is. Jeremiah 29, the enemy seems to be Babylon. Why? Because those people invaded Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and dragged people away. That's the people that they didn't leave behind, brutalizing them, murdering others. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, love your enemies, he's referring to the Romans who had invaded, were in a habit of sometimes burning things to the ground and brutalizing people to maintain the peace. That doesn't sound like our world, doesn't sound like life in America, so who are our enemies? I think this is the best way that I might be able to answer this for you. Our enemies are anyone and anything that works against the shalom of all peoples. Our enemies are anyone or anything that works against making sure that all people in all places at all times have the opportunity to flourish. Now behind that, and the Apostle Paul gets into this right, he says, look, behind those people, behind those institutions, behind those systems and structures and ideas are are these dark powers of sin and death. And they embed themselves in people and things and systems and structures. And they actively work against the flourishing of all peoples in all times, in all places. Those are our enemies. We could talk about who those are. That's a conversation for a different day. But what we hear is our Lord and Savior looking at us and going, yes. And as you do my work, confronting that, resisting that, making that right, call that justice biblically, when you partner with me in that work, I want you to do that with a heart of love. Love your enemies. Y'all, I believe that we are willing to do that. I just don't think we can. Because I think even if we, out of our allegiance to Jesus, says, yes, sir. You want me to love my enemies? I have a beat on who that is. When you get me face to face, when you hear me as I'm wrestling with the story of people who have been hurt, or the actions of those enemies, I can't get there. And I don't think we as a church can on our own, which is why we have to rely upon the grace of God. This, by the way, is our distinction in the world around us that's all about justice, but they don't think that they need the grace of God in order to do it. And it's only the grace of God that creates the imagination that says the way that we counter what's happening in the world is is with love. The grace of God shows up in these verses in 8 through 14, and there's a pattern here. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And says, once you begin to get in this rhythm of experiencing what I'm going to do, then all of a sudden, you will, you will, you will. Let me actually read this. Verses 10 to 14. Look at this with me, okay? Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. 
And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the flywheel of grace. The loving, empowering presence of God begins to act in us, and then it begins to act through us. The challenge when we're living in exile is that we don't feel like God is being gracious to us. God seems absent. We seem unable to meet the moment. It seems like whatever promise of power that he has given us, where is it? We don't have juice, we don't have mojo, we don't have anointing, whatever you want to call it, it's not there. And the love of God... Where is the love of God in Babylon when God says, I want you to bless the very people who burned down your city, who tore down your temple, who brutalized and murdered mothers, sisters, fathers, brothers, sons, daughters? This is the love of God. Where is the love of God a hundred years later when people have returned to Jerusalem only to find it a husk of a city and to find that the people, almost without hesitation, go back to a way of life where they're worshiping idols and committing injustice? Where's the love of God there? And where is the love of God here and now in the Babylons that the world has created? The pain, the brutality, the anger, the anxiety, the disruption, the dismissal. Things that other people have done, things that we've done. God loves us? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God loves you. God loves me. God loves us. God loves all the peoples in all the places. That's why he sent a king to rescue the world from all the Babylons we've created. (laughs) 600 years after God's people are dragged out of Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth walks into Jerusalem. I'll preach to myself today, that's okay. Jesus left heaven and came to earth for us. Jesus comes to earth and practices subversive loyalty. You might remember that he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, what belongs to him. Give to God what is God's, what belongs to him. And then Jesus ends up being crucified on a Roman cross. The Romans were the Babylonians of his day for political purposes, But underneath and beyond and over and through those political purposes is a divine purpose of God sending Jesus into cosmic exile so that we might have a home. So now we get into the good news. The the through line from Jeremiah 29 to a bloody cross and an empty tomb is the good news of the gospel. The story of all that God does through Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel reminds us that Jesus is the saving king. And because he's the saving king, y'all, don't miss this. Exiles always have a home. Because Jesus is the saving king, exiles always have a home. And our home ultimately is not a place, it's a person. The Jesus who is always with us. 
The Jesus who empowers us to do whatever it is that he asks us to do. And the Jesus who loves us. And as we continue to, to bathe and soak and relish and worship and glorify Jesus because of his love for us, what we find is that we are continuing to be a people who say, God loves me, so let's go love the world. Is that not the story of our church? We are a church in exile, and have we not for 40 plus years practiced subversive loyalty? Have we not expressed love for our enemies? Have we not relied upon God's grace? Yes. So y'all, the message I think God wants me to pass on to you is, hey, let's keep going. Let's keep blessing our neighbors. Let's, let's keep digging roots into the places where we live, building homes, living among the people, planting gardens, enjoying life here, living generously, because we want people to flourish. We want people to flourish mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, vocationally, and underneath it all, spiritually. Let's keep blessing our neighbors. Let's keep being weird. Let's keep being the kind of people that our neighbors and coworkers go, they're great to work with. I love living next to them. They're great citizens. But there are places in, where we just feel like we don't always fit in because in every place, there are lines that we can't cross because of our allegiance to God. That makes us weird. So let's keep being weird. Let's keep surprising our enemies by partnering with them in things that we can agree on. This is for the good of the world. And in our partnership, in those moments of disagreement, hey, I don't think that's right. I don't think we could do this. I don't think we can move forward. We can assume the best of them and not the worst. We can be curious. We can deploy empathy and humility and kind candor so that they might experience us as people who don't just cave in, but out of allegiance to our God, they experience us as people who have a vision for the future and who love them deeply and love them well. Let's just keep doing that. We've already been doing it. And let's keep relying upon God. You can't explain our church apart from the grace of God. You can't explain what God has done and continues to do apart from a God who says, I will. Whatever it is that I'm asking you to do, lean on me. I will. You are my people and my place for this purpose, and I will give you everything that you need to go and do the job. So we don't have to rely on our own strength or smarts. We rely on him. Because underneath it all, and through it all, and in it all, we have said, and I believe we will continue to say, Jesus is at the center of this church. Let's keep Jesus at the center of our church. We're about to sing a song and there are lyrics that go like this. From the beginning all the way to the end. It will always be. It's always been about Jesus. That's a word of testimony about our church. For people who have been here since the beginning. People have been here for a decade. People have been here for a year or a month or even a week. I think a way to respond to the encouragement of God is Maybe to turn those words into a prayer. I'd love for you to stand with me. I want you to take whatever it is that you have heard. You might not have even processed it yet. 
and to lift up what you've heard in your life as a response for yourself, for your family, for your home group, for your Sunday community, for our church, and say, this is what we're about. And we're going to say this out loud together as a prayer from the beginning all the way to the end. It will always be, it's always been about Jesus. Amen. Whenever I'm up here, I invite people to just maybe extend your hands like this because whatever God wants to give you, whatever blessing that he intends to get into your life, it's just a way for us as human beings to go, yes, God, I'd I'd like that. This comes from the 15th chapter of Romans in the 13th verse, and this is God's blessing for you, for me, for our church, for the sake of the world. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace, all joy and flourishing in your believing as you give your allegiance to Jesus so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you, me, us, might abound in hope. So go with hope in God. You're dismissed. We love you. Hope to see you soon.